Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and what's this? A tap solo. A razzmatazz. Jazzy jazz. All with my feet. He did not use his feet, FYI, <laughs> for that. But really, such an elaborate introduction for yourself there, Jason. Well, Josh, if any film deserves an elaborate introduction, both based on the production on screen and the elaborate costs off screen, it would be this one, wouldn't it? That it would. We we did not appropriately uh, murder someone in order to produce this podcast, but it would fit for this film. Uh, in this season, this special 10th season of Awesome Movie Year, we are taking a look back at all of the awesome movie years that we've talked about in past seasons. And in this episode, we are looking once again at 1984 and picking up on a box office flop, as we do. And uh, this flop that we're talking about is Francis Ford Coppola's film, The Cotton Club, which does have really, aside from being uh, a big failure at the box office and, and really one of the most famous box office failures uh, for of, of a few decades, uh, and in a career of a master filmmaker who also made numerous giant flops, uh, it is probably the most, maybe the most notable. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But uh, in his defense, I don't think he funded this one on his own. So, you know. He didn't. He, he didn't. There was all sorts of insane behind the scenes drama to fund this film. Uh, and Coppola actually uh, was brought in, in a way, maybe to rescue the film from some of its disasters that occurred before he became involved. And then he just compounded the disasters because that's, the way that these things go, and uh, increased the budget uh, with his uh, the way he made the film. But uh, yeah, he fired the entire crew, basically brought in his own crew. You know, he as he does, he builds all these crazy sets. His music man was flown back and forth to Sweden and the U.S. on like a private Concorde. He just uh, you know anything for the name of art, right? And. Uh, you could argue that it was for the best because regardless of what the behind the scenes drama was, the end result was uh, enjoyed by many people. Although it was a huge failure at the box office, eventually grossing $25.9 million on its budget of $58 million, which ballooned in part uh, because of uh, all of the things that Coppola did, but had already uh, increased before he came on board. Uh, it was produced by the legendary Robert Evans, who initially had hired Robert Altman as the director, and uh, Altman left because his previous movie, Evans, instead uh, then was going to direct himself, and uh, eventually decided to bring in Coppola to direct. And there is such a long, long saga of the behind-the-scenes stuff with this movie, we could probably just devote our whole podcast to, to talking about it. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I think back to our Boondock Saints episode where it's tough to separate the myth from the fact and what you see on screen from what you what you read about off screen. I've both read and seen the documentary The Kid Stays in the Picture, Robert Evans, you know, um, which both a great book and a great documentary. So obviously a large part of that is devoted to the Cotton Club, of course, from Evans' point of view of like, I begged Francis, let me re-edit the picture, Francis. I'll make it a hit. There's a hit here. You just don't see it, baby, right? You know? So, <laughs> you know, and then Kovala is just like, hey, the problems were all there before I got there, you know? So, yeah, it's just one of those things. But as you know, Josh, in more recent years, it's been reevaluated and has an even bigger following now. and. Uh, Coppola released because every Coppola movie apparently needs a, a theatrical cut and a Coppola cut or multiple so, cuts. Right. So if you th like if we looked at Coppola's filmography and you're like, oh, he directed 19 movies, I'm going to watch all of them. You really have to watch like 38 to 45 movies. Right. So for this one, Josh, you and I watched the theatrical cut 
And Dave watched the Coppola cut. Yes, the Cotton Club mm-hmm. Encore was Coppola's version yes. that was released in 2019. And uh, this is more for the legacy, maybe. But uh, as we discussed in our episode of Amadeus, this is one of those movies where finding the original cut is quite difficult. That for Jason and I to watch that, uh, we had to go back to an out-of-print DVD and uh, buy it on eBay to watch that. But the director's cut is readily available if you wanted to watch this movie uh, after or before hearing this podcast. Uh, And you were looking for it to rent or to stream on a number of different services uh, or even to get a current Blu-ray of the film. It is all Coppola's director's cut. So he has uh, succeeded, much like his old friend George Lucas, in replacing the original version uh, of his film uh, effectively with the new version. Well, what she does with basically, you know, we know Godfather 3. You know, the thing about Coppola, though, is like all of his uh, refashioned films seem to have get much better feedback than the theatrical cuts, right? You well, know? it varies. I, yeah, mm-hmm. Godfather 3 is another one recently. Although I think, thankfully, if you wanted to see the original cut of Godfather 3, it would still be uh, not difficult. It's not good. Not and I'm good. sure that's that's <laughs> a separate point. Um, I, it doesn't, but no, but the point is that most people would say this version is better than the original version, just like they say with the cotton club. And also, you know, I remember when he did apocalypse now redux, that was cause that's one of his most beloved movies. They say redux is just as good. So maybe the mistake was all these people not letting Coppola spend as much money as he wanted and do whatever he wanted at all points. In time. Well, and the thing with that, though, is that he made the redux and people liked it. And then he made another cut. There is a third cut of Apocalypse Now called the final cut. That is his preferred version, preferred over his previous preferred version. So um, <laughs> he's always working on it. Yes. So back to the making of the Cotton Club, though, I love the the the, the financial backers in order to get the money to make this film included a, a pair of Las Vegas casino owners and a Saudi arms dealer, as well as a vaudeville promoter who was eventually murdered. And that was what I was alluding to. And Robert Evans was uh, accused and went on trial for uh, allegedly ordering the murder of this financier uh, of the of this film. So I feel like the behind the scenes story of the Cotton Club probably more interesting than the film itself, and furthermore, weirdly parallels the themes of the movie. And Josh, if you wanted to look more into that, you could read the book Bad Company: Drugs, Hollywood, and the Cotton Club Murder, or. If you wanted a fictionalized version, you could watch the Law and Order episode, His Hour Upon the Stage. Oh, man. I, so that's, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that there's something, because reading about this, I thought, this is the, the material, this would be perfect for some sort of investigative podcast or well, a documentary. So I'm going to stop you right there, because they're making the, the limited series of the making of The Godfather. Yes. It should have been the limited series about the making of The Cotton Club. Absolutely. That's what it should have been. Absolutely. And yeah. Maybe that'll be the second season. Maybe they'll, they'll uh, do that. And Josh, um, you bring up a good point. When, you, when one of your financiers is Iran-Contra scandal member Adnan Khashoggi, and he's not the most uh, nefarious part of the film, maybe... You should because Evans had the money lined up from, I think, Paramount. And he's like, no, I'm going to finance it myself like the old days, you know, and and, then this is what happens. That is. And as we learn watching the film, when you involve yourself with gangsters, it's dangerous. Bad things can happen. Uh, So despite all that turmoil, it was actually fairly well received, if not at the box office uh, by critics uh, and by awards. It was nominated for two Oscars for Best Editing and for Best Art Direction, uh, as well as Golden Globes for Best Picture and Best Director for Francis Ford Coppola. However, on the other hand, it was also nominated for a Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress for Diane Lane, which it shared with Streets of Fire. And I think we can agree that between this and Streets of Fire, Diane Lane had a great year (laughs) as far as performance goes. Not a bad year. Should not have been nominated for Razzies for that. Yeah. The, That's the, ridiculous. Well, what's more of a surprise to me is that it was nominated for best editing. I don't look at this picture and say, what a what a finely edited film. It's just like very episodic. Here's a wipe. Now here's a scene. 
Now, here's another scene. There's nothing smooth about the edits. In fact, I think that's one of the problems here. Um, but I will say, and you all know what a fan I am of Streets of Fire and and Diane Lane in general. I uh, I don't think this is her best performance. I don't think she holds up in this one. It may not be her best performance, but I think to to hold this up as the worst supporting actress of the year is is wrong. I, I thought she was one of the more appealing performances in the movie, um, which is not now, not necessarily saying a whole lot. Now, how did you feel about Lynn Holly Johnson's performance in Where the Boys Are 84, which won that Golden you Raspberry? You know, I have not seen Where the Boys Are 84, but I have, of course, seen Streets of Fire, which was our original pick for Flop in 1984. For that episode. Listen to that episode. Go check that one out. You know, and it shows something about Diane Lane's talent that uh, she could get crushed in two flops in that year and just go on to be the successful, uh, wonderful actress that she is. Yeah. And at a young age, I mean, she was only 18 when she made this film and uh, already making bold, creative choices in which films she would appear in. So this was, again, mostly well-received by critics. It was mixed, but it was more positive than I would have imagined before looking this up because my thought was that this was a failure critically and commercially, and it wasn't until the encore cut, the director's cut, that critics came around. But a lot of critics really liked this film. Uh, It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. And watching the segment, both Siskel and Ebert talk about, and this movie in its original cut is about 130 minutes long. It's not short. Um, But both of them kind of allude to the behind the scenes drama and say that they wanted the movie to be longer. Siskel says he would have watched a three hour cut of this film. And Ebert said he would watch a longer cut than three hours. So because you had to top Siskel. I guess. Yeah, that's what you want a three hour cut. I'll watch a seven hour cut just to spite you. Yeah. (laughs) So they were they were very enthused, Mm. although Siskel was was uh, not a fan of uh, of Richard Gere's performance, his lead performance as the uh, cornet player who gets involved with gangsters in 1920s and 30s Harlem. And actually, I was sort of surprised because Siskel seemed to have a lot of criticisms, but then ultimately he named it as his number three movie of 1984, and Ebert named it as his number five movie of 1984. So both of them really not only liked it, but, you know, uh, remembered it or thought about it when they were putting together their top 10 lists and reflected on it well. So their top five lists. Well, right. I mean, the list were top 10, but it did make it and the top five. And Siskel's top three list. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, for your <laughs> really your affinity with numbers. You should have joined the numbers racket in, in Harlem <laughs> in the 1930s. Thanks to your expertise there. I don't think I don't think I would have done too well in the numbers racket, Josh. Probably not, but uh, I would have liked to see you try. So <laughs> Roger Ebert said, the two love stories are developed against a background of a lot of very good jazz, some great dancing, sharply etched character studies of the gang bosses, and a couple of unexpected bursts of violence that remind us in their sudden explosion of moments in Coppola's Godfather films. Indeed, there's a lot of The Godfather in The Cotton Club, especially in the movie's almost elegiac sadness. We get the feeling of time passing and personal histories being written, and some people breaking free and other people dying or surrendering to hopelessness. And I haven't seen The Godfather movies in quite some time, but this is not on the level of those films, I don't think. No, but I mean, the, it's going to be obviously compared to that. Although I'll tell you what I would compare it to. Another film we covered, this really had a lot of feelings um, like uh, New York, New York to me. The Scorsese film that we covered from 77, which was a flop then, right? You know, and um, it just kind of felt tonally um, and of that time, like this was going for similar themes, although not as much uh, in New York, New York of the gangster feel. Right. And this movie, not quite as much of the horrific misogyny as in uh, as in New York, New York, but not as much. But there is misogyny. there is some there is some. But uh, but the the lead character, Richard Gere character here is much more tolerable than the Robert De Niro character in New York, New York. Yeah, but this movie doesn't have Clarence Clemens. We could go back and forth all day. It has Let's Gregory Hines. Um, <laughs> he's so good. He's he's probably my I mean, the Hines brothers are probably my favorite thing in this. Movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the movie, um, this reminds me, uh, or I think New York, New York, 
as far as Scorsese and Coppola connections, I think is is usually compared more to one from the heart because of the musical aspect. But there's a lot of music in this movie too. So I guess really the thing is, is that Coppola, while Scorsese made one New York, New York, that was a huge flop, Coppola made two New York, New Yorks that were huge flops <laughs> between this and one from the heart. Well, Josh, here's a little known fact. Coppola directed the Godfather films and Scorsese directed Goodfellas. And those are all about gangsters. As is the Cotton Club. Although- And Casino. Yes. I feel like this movie comes off. I realize that that Coppola you know, came in later in the process, but the, the balance in this film um, that was, I think, uh, altered by Coppola in the director's cut between the music, all of this 1920s and 30s jazz and the tap dancing from the Heinz brothers and then the gangster plot, it feels like Coppola was stuck making a gangster movie when what he really wanted was to make a music movie. But it's like, oh, you got you did The Godfather, so you got to put in the gangsters. I think that's a really interesting point. And personally, I would have rather have seen the music movie and the Cotton Club stuff. You know, what? the other thing I was thinking about when watching this is Boardwalk Empire, which I think obviously was, what, five, six seasons. But that handled the scope of this type of thing much better as of course it's a not a two-hour movie but i just thought the balance of that really worked whereas this you know i i was like no just bring me bring me more heinz brothers yeah and i could see uh someday maybe not related to coppola specifically but just this historical period in the cotton club which was a real place in harlem uh during this time period being the subject of a boardwalk empire style prestige TV series, because there's clearly a lot of material to go through there. And much like Boardwalk Empire, a lot of real figures, people who are fictionalized in this movie that could be characters in something like that alongside fictional characters, I think that would absolutely be the source material for something like that. So Paul Adonazio in the Washington Post was also quite positive. He said, obviously, such an intricate tale can't be told in a movie slightly longer than two hours. So Coppola and his co-writer, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist William Kennedy, making a virtue of necessity, have starved the script till the characters are nothing more than their entrances and exits. A conventional storyline for Coppola is the tie that binds. Instead, he depends on theme, mood, symmetries of structure, and jazzy style to give the Cotton Club its unity. While the parallel between the dual tales of competing brothers, the Williamses, the Dwyers, is never developed dramatically, its formal perfection works in the movie like a balance wheel. Similarly, Coppola never makes Dwyer's tribulations narratively convincing. He's convincing on the level of metaphor. And so his whole this whole review is basically like, treats this movie as some sort of abstract art film and decides that the lack of character development or plot coherence is a, is a plus, which I don't quite buy. I don't either, but I do agree that it is a little more impressionistic, abstract, you know, than than what you would expect in a mainstream film because it is Coppola. William Kennedy, the co-writer, what a year he had. He had this bomb, and at the same year, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Ironweed. Yeah, which was later made into a film starring uh, Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep in 1987, which I've never seen and had not even heard of, but I think was, you know, kind of a prestige thing at the time. <laughs> Never even seen or heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, he's a heavy hitter. And of course, uh, Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, the original Godfather novel, was the, the first screenwriter on this project and is still credited with the screen story. So a couple of really major novelists brought in here to sort of wrangle this into something coherent and both have failed. And, you know, yeah, Kennedy has said they did 30 to 40 drafts and Gregory Hines said they shot a three hour movie in rehearsal. And, you know, Kennedy said they stayed up for 48 hours just writing draft after draft. So all that stuff would play really well in the uh, limited series that we're pitching. Yes. Cotton Club. I'm telling you, up. you know, the second season, because that Godfather series has got people playing Coppola and Robert Evans was involved, too. So I feel like that's just what they're they're just going to transition into the second season of that with the Cotton Club. I mean, there is that built in thing, because like you said, like Evans and Coppola weren't buddies, right? Like they already had this animosity between them uh, from the days, probably back to the Godfather, if not before, you know, and it's funny that he was just like, you, you know, I guess money, money uh, trumps everything. So 
they just thought they could make it work together. Right. Well, and, and Coppola at the time uh, was coming off uh, a number of, of failures and probably needed to take whatever job that he could get. And if he yeah. was offered the chance to direct this major film, it's not something that he could really say no to. Right. That's most of Coppola in the 80s, I'd say. Yeah. You and know? Even, and even it was like later than the 80s, in the 90s, too, right. I think. Trying to make up for it. I mean, I kind of love that about him. I mean, he just like, there's he's extreme in that way, right? Like he always goes for it. And he's like, if I fail and lose all the money, I'll gain it all back. And now, of course, he has it all from the vineyard, right? Anyway, but um, but yeah, he never really compromised as far as he's like, he knew he would have to work within the studio system, but he was willing to do that to work outside of it as well. I, th- I think he's interesting that way. Yeah, and one thing too is that he's brought in uh, as this sort of director for hire here on this project that already exists. And he doesn't just come in and say like, okay, I'll uh, you know oversee this thing and make sure it gets to the finish line. He makes it his own and in ways that obviously piss a lot of people off, as you were mentioning about firing uh, crew members, bringing in his own people, expanding the budget, all of that. But he's not willing to make the movie unless it's his movie. Right. And Altman, of course, would have been a great director for it probably a little more um, uh, seamless in the way it weaves through characters and everything. But uh, yeah, this is what we have. And uh, it's always interesting to me when they get the reevaluations and stand the test of time even better. And it's like the redemption for Coppola yet again. Yes. So uh, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker hated this movie and wrote a very, very long screed against it, as she tends to do. So uh, she said... If a whiz kid director from the three minute rock video field tried his hand at a jazz age gangster musical, the result might be the Cotton Club. Francis Coppola, who co-wrote and directed it, seemed to have skimmed the top off every 20s, 30s picture he has seen, added seltzer, stirred it up with a swizzle stick, and called it a movie. The shots don't look as if he were framing for the movie camera. They're framed for video excitement. His only goal seems to be to keep the imagery rushing by, for dazzle, for spectacle. The thinking, or the emotional state, behind his conception appears to be that it's all been done before, and that what remains is to feed your senses. He just wants to look at pretty lights, movement, color. He's watching his brain cells twinkle. Well, one thing that I find interesting to me is, like, there were times I really wanted more movement, because those dance numbers and uh, song, song and dance numbers and the costumes and the stage is so dynamic and the camera work a lot was just like static long shot. And I get that, but it wasn't really until we have those Gregory Hines solos in act three that you, and also in the beginning of the movie, when they're first showcasing the cotton club, that you're getting the energy of those performances. And that was, that was something I noticed throughout the film. So that's interesting. Uh, I mean, I do agree with like, it's a lot of bip, bop, bip, bop, bop, you know, back and forth. And are we really saying anything in any anywhere? Right. I mean, I think her her obvious contempt for music videos, which again, this was 1984, right? At the first rise of MTV is maybe misplaced on this movie. I mean, I never thought of this as an MTV style film or anything like that. I mean, Coppola clearly is trying to emulate the style of films from this time period, uh, musicals and gangster films that are explicitly referenced here and give it a modern spin. But I, I, it didn't strike me as, you know, something like uh, the movies that were being made by music video directors starting, maybe starting a little later in the 80s as those directors moved from music videos into feature films. I, I really didn't see that at all. So I feel like this is, this is Pauline Kael coming off slightly curmudgeonly uh at this point which is which is her right <laughs> and uh you know for the for the saying takes one to know one if josh calls you a curmudgeon <laughs> yes you're a curmudgeon indeed it's and it's not necessarily an insult <laughs> from from me right right it's not <laughs> so i think it's safe to say none of us had seen this film before no i had never seen it i'm glad i'm glad we got to it man yeah, I'm not, uh, I mean, as as we've said, Coppola has a very uh, uneven career. I mean, he's made some of the greatest movies of all time between the first two God, I mean, his run of the first two Godfathers and Apocalypse Now and The Conversation, yeah. one of the, the greatest runs of filmmaking in cinema history. 
Uh, and all of those movies held up as the greatest, uh, among the greatest films ever made. Uh, I, people might say, many might say that The Godfather is the greatest film ever made. But I think more would say The Godfather too. Yeah, maybe. Or it might be even, but I mean, the fact that 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 we could have a debate about that is is in itself amazing in terms of Coppola's achievements. But yeah, I mean, for me personally, I haven't seen that many. I have seen all four of those films, and I love the conversation. Um, but even or earlier Coppola, even some of his acclaimed films, um, you know, coming right before this, movies that were not successful at the box office, but have certainly gained in reputation. You know, the the teen films that he made based on S.E. Hinton novels, Rumblefish and The Outsiders. I haven't seen either of those or, or some of his less notable films either. And I feel like he's not a director that I am motivated to. I should watch all of Coppola's films because he's so inconsistent. Yeah, I, I think, OK, at the same time, he's always trying to do something interesting. And, you know, as I told you before we started, I watched The Outsiders last night which falls in both a Coppola category for me and a teen movie, you know, category for me, which obviously the eighties were the, the, the limelight of that. So, and I don't love that movie, but I'm glad I saw it. Like I, I don't need, like even this one, I want, I would like to watch the cut that Dave watched at some point. Not right now. He's interesting enough where like, you know, I want to, I want to see what he was doing. He, he was taking big shots and sometimes they, Failed miserably, but uh, he was always taking those shots. Yeah, and I appreciate that. But in terms of sitting down to watch a movie, am I eager to watch something beyond his, you know, major acknowledged classics? Eh, I don't know. So, Dave, you you watched this director's cut. Was uh, what's your feeling on Coppola? What was your background with him? I mean, I've only seen the Godfather movies once. Um, I'm actually going to see it in Dolby, the the first one on uh, February 25th, the 50th anniversary uh, screening. So I'm looking forward to you know, revisiting that. And, uh, you know, now that I've seen the Cotton Club, also hopefully seeing more of his stuff because I, I really haven't seen that many of his films. Yeah, I too have. you ever seen Jack? <laughs> I haven't seen Jack. Yeah. I've also only seen the Godfather films once and never the third one, but the the first two only, only once mm-hmm. a number of years ago. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it's lovely in, in Dolby though. And I'm sure they did a great job with the restoration. And that's one that Coppola has not messed with. He's not made a director's cut of the original Godfather. It's still the way that it was originally made that was considered. You can't fix it. The second, the second one is better to me, but I mean, you know, again, you're arguing which of these two of the greatest movies better uh, ever made is the better of the two of the greatest movies ever made. Right. I mean, the fact that that's the conversation is, is enough. If that's all Coppola had ever done, he'd be in the pantheon for just those things. So mm. again, there's a ton of stuff here, but do you want to mention anything else about the background, Jason? Uh, well, I mean, we're going to be talking about Dixie Dwyer, the Richard Gere character who they say is based on George Raft. Josh, you want to tell us a little about George Raft? Or? He was the inspiration for the character of Dixie Dwyer <laughs> in the film The Cotton Club by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, he, he had uh, success in the 30s in the gangster picks and he grew up poor and you know, probably uh, dealing with the quote unquote unsavory elements of New York before he went out to Hollywood. And I think Oni Madden, the gangster here played by Bob Hoskins, did kind of like sponsor him on the uh, getting onto the screen. So that's a fun thing. Hey, Josh, I also like that Lawrence Fishburne played Bumpy Rhodes in this one based on the gangster Bumpy Johnson. And in the 1997 film Hoodlum, he played Bumpy Johnson. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, it's a mix of historical characters, people like Oni Madden, who were real people and then fictionalized versions or fictional characters like the Dixie Dwyer character who's inspired by George Raft, but is not necessarily meant to be George Raft. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see, it's weird too, because Dixie Dwyer is not a real person, but the character that they make his brother, the Nick, that Nicolas Cage plays is a real person or is, um, you know, that name is a real person. Uh, so they kind of meld together the fictional character and the real character into a family that it is not the way that it really existed. That was not George Raff's brother. Movies. Now more than ever. <laughs> we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the Cotton Club. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special retrospective 10th season, we are returning to 1984 to talk about 
another musical flop starring Diane Lane. We talked about Streets of Fire initially, and now we are talking about Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. And, and I think for me, you know, we just spent a lot of time talking about the background of this movie, and there's a lot more even that we could have delved into. The, that was more interesting than the process of watching the movie and what's actually on screen here, which I felt like it's not the kind of flop where you watch it and think, oh, what a gigantic disaster this film is. Um, it just feels very bland and forgettable, really, despite all of the drama that went into creating it and Coppola's obvious dedication to trying to emulate these musicals and gangster films from the 1930s. It, it just felt very underwhelming to me, both as a musical and as a, a gangster film, especially compared to what Coppola has done elsewhere. I felt there was enough good in here that it kept my interest. And there was also enough things where I was like wondering the decision making process that I was interested in the bad as well. It, it didn't turn me off, but it was like, um, you know, you said it, it wasn't a disaster, but some parts were disastrous. And you're like, why is that in here? Like, but it's a beautiful disaster in a way, right? Like, uh, it, it, again, it's a big swing and he connected with the ball and maybe hit it uh, over the fence, but it went foul instead of being a home run. I'll, I'll explain the sports analogy to you later, Josh. But <laughs> there was enough good stuff. But at the same time, I kind of agree with you. Like I said, like there are so many good musical performances and I wanted the camera work to follow that. And it did in acts one and three, but act two, which is the longest act here, it just kind of is very static. Um, I didn't really, I agree with the critics that you've mentioned. I didn't really care for Diane Lane. I didn't really think Richard Gere was at his best here. You know, this is really maybe not the type of part Richard Gere should be playing. And I thought the more interesting stuff was the stuff going on at the Cotton Club. I like the relationship between Oni Madden and Frenchie, but I really didn't like James Remar as the Dutchman. The Dutchman, who is the main gangster. So the story here, Dixie Dwyer, who is the cornet player played by Richard Gere, who did his own cornet playing in this film. So good for him. Um, he is uh, inadvertently saves Dutch, the gangster played by James Remar, from a, an assassination attempt, a bomb or a dynamite or something placed under his table at another club, and thus becomes Dutch's kind of favored musician slash lackey and is also uh, given the responsibility to watch over Dutch's mistress, the Diane Lane character, Vera. And of course, he falls in love with Vera. They fall in love with each other. Um, and uh, in the meantime, the Cotton Club is a thing that is also run by the gangsters. Um, and we have a separate storyline that I think in the director's cut is given more even footing than in this film where clearly in part because the studio obviously thought, well, people aren't going to go see a movie about black characters, so we need to emphasize the story of these white characters. But Gregory Hines, who plays a tap dancer and singer and entertainer. Sandman Williams. Sandman Williams, who along with his brother, played by Gregory Hines' actual brother, Maurice Hines, they get the chance to perform at the Cotton Club, which was a club in Harlem where black performers performed for white audiences. Uh, and he then also falls in love with a singer played by Lynette McKee. And in a very, I felt like, unbelievable and choppy love story. And the two storylines basically never intersect. It's basically just two different movies that kind of exist alongside each other. And I thought that was another dissatisfying thing. Like, you, we, you know, we think about Altman and Altman is known for a bunch of films where he presents this wide range of characters and a kind of a tapestry of stories that intersect slightly. And I feel like a different movie could have been just set at the club. And here are the stories of maybe a dozen different characters, including the Richard Gere character and the Gregory Hines character and maybe others. And it's really about the setting, which I think was initially maybe the inspiration for this film was a, a book of photos of the setting, you know, and what went on in the Cotton Club. But the fact that it's just these two stories that are not given equal weight and don't intersect, it feels very tonally sort of haphazard. The love stories here are some of the weaker elements of it, right? Like I was more interested in the relationship between the Heinz brothers and how one was kind of betraying the other. And I thought the scene where 
Bumpy makes them dance together at the other club, at the club where, um, you know, African-Americans are allowed to go and, uh, you know, uh, just watch and patronize. Like that scene was one of my favorites in the movie. I like, I really like that song they performed and just like they're mesmerizing as dancers. Right. So yeah, I would have liked to have seen more of that stuff. And I think there could have been more. There was that line where I think Bumpy said it, where he goes, you know, or maybe it was one of the Heinz brothers. We're all the entertainers here, but we're not allowed to be here. Right. So like there was a lot more they could have dug into on the race aspects of this. Um, yeah, none of the, none of the love stories did much for me. The stuff with Dixie, uh, I guess could have led somewhere different with Oni protecting him and the Dutchman just having to deal with it. But I don't know. I, I, like I said, there was enough good here that kept me interested, but even when, uh, Lucky Luciano came in, right. Who I guess, I mean, I didn't do the rest of the research, but you know, was he the one who set up him and Oni, I guess, set up the, uh, the hit on the Dutchman. Yeah, I guess I, I don't know either. The Dutchman is a real, that was a real person, a real character, but the gangster stuff here, not only is it boring, but it's very convoluted and not worth like your attention to figure that out. The, there's the, the African-American gangsters who are putting together the numbers racket, which what is a numbers racket? I don't even know. Um, but it's a they, way to kind of beat the odds in like horse racing and stuff like that. So okay, you can always that. get paid off. I think so. so. They've got that, and then there's the the white gangsters. But there's multiple factions. There's Jewish gangsters and Italian gangsters and Irish gangsters. And I mean, this is all familiar gangster movie stuff. But I felt like it was all kind of not very well developed and also not interesting. And as you said, James Remar, not great as the Dutchman. He kind of chews the scenery. Bob Hoskins, I enjoyed as Oni Madden, who is both the owner of the Cotton Club as well as uh, a gang boss himself and his chemistry with Fred Gwynn as Frenchie. Great. His right-hand man slash assistant slash clearly uh, secret lover. That was fun. Um, again, why do you always think everyone's a secret lover? There's... there. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense. I, first of all, let me go back before I just jump on that. Right. So Fred Gwynn, who most of us know as Herman Munster. Right. Um, and then maybe as the judge and my cousin Vinny. Right. He's very good in this movie. He was one of my favorite things in it. I really thought he did a great job and he's obviously such a physical presence. Like it was great to see him act. Um, and I did think I like Bob Hoskins as Oni Madden. Why do you think they were lovers? I mean, I'm partially because I knew it would outrage you, but um, <laughs> I mean, there is one scene here where uh, so later in the film, Nicolas Cage's character, Vincent, who is Dixie Dwyer's brother and is kind of a thug. He uses his brother's connection to the gangster world to set himself up as, you know, sort of a, I don't even know why that's part of the. He's the trying to move up to become like a made man, a capo or something like that. So, you know, he could be on the level of these guys. Right. But he messes it up and he tries to he uh, assassinate the Dutchman's uh, right hand man, uh, who is this very ghoulish figure uh, named Saul, I think was his name. And in this drive by shooting, they accidentally they kill a child. And so he becomes this wanted figure. And even the gangsters are after him and he's on the run and he's desperate. And in order to get himself some money and get himself uh, away from everything, he kidnaps Frenchie, Fred Gwynn's character, and demands money from Oni Madden, which goes through this complicated maneuver and, and uh, Dixie Dwyer brings the money. And eventually Frenchie is released and Oni Madden is reunited with his friend Frenchie. And they have this touching reunion scene where they also kind of joke about the amount of money that Oni Madden is willing to pay for Frenchie. And uh, Frenchie gets him a, like a little present. And I mean, it's obviously meant to just be there that they're friends, but I, I felt like that scene was so weirdly intimate and furthermore, more emotionally convincing than either of the main love stories in the film that it just made me think like, this is a nicer dynamic and, and wouldn't have been uh, you know, weirdly more rewarding and interesting if this was a story about these unlikely lovers here. Well, The Sopranos did the uh, homosexual gangster and uh, that was all like season four and five with Big Vito and Johnny Cakes. Um, but uh, but see, the thing is, Josh, like you always talk about how you like movies about friendship. 
And here you have this intimate friendship based on their work and, uh, you know, how close they are. And you just can't accept it as a platonic friendship of between two gangsters who murder people. Like, why can't you just accept that? But that's okay. I do think that relationship, I agree with you, is more interesting than the love stories. You mentioned Vincent, Nicolas Cage, very good in this movie. I think we see that, right? Um, so that's the thing is like for every good thing, there's a bad thing, but we're not focused on anything. <laughs> we're focused on everything, which makes us focus on nothing. Right. So, um, yeah. as opposed to, you know, there was just nothing strong enough to, to see it through. So yeah, man, I, uh, uh, look set decoration. Great music. Great cab Calloway performance. I love cab Calloway. I was a little disappointed that they didn't blues brothers it and get to the point in Minnie the Moocha where like he goes crazy with the scatting, you know? So, but I thought, I thought they could have done that, but that was, that was very good. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's music, it's set, it's production design and it's uh, the dancing. Those are my, those are my pros on this one. And, and Fred Gwynoni, Matt and uh, Bob Hoskins. You know, yeah, country. there's some good stuff, but that's all weirdly in the margins because we have all this Richard Gere, Diane Lane drama and the drama of Dixie Dwyer himself being conflicted about, you know, wanting to be a musician. And then later he wants to be an actor like George Raft, uh, but he's stuck in this world of gangsters and he's just a very passive, boring character. And Richard Gere, as you said, Jason, is probably miscast here. This isn't really the right role for him. And he doesn't really come off as convincing. I don't think in this role. And as good as Gregory Hines is at tap dancing, his character is also not very interesting. And and his relationship with Lynette McKee, uh, not, you know, they're trying to make it this big epic, uh, you know, love story where they're uh, apart because she's kind of, she's passing for white and she's trying to advance in her career. And that's, there's, they're on the sort of uh, opposite sides of this racial divide and none of it really comes across because it's not properly developed. So yeah, uh, all the drama. Let me jump in there because we say, you know, part of the problem with the Richard Gere, Diane Lane love story is performance wise. Like, yes, writing wise, it's not there. Performance wise, it's not there. But with Gregory Hines, the performance, he he's very good in this movie, both as a dancer and an actor, you know? So, but I don't, I, but I do agree with you that it's like, Hey, we just had a fight and now we're getting going to the wedding. Right. But like, you know, as opposed to like when you see them in like the hoofers club, right. Which is all the older black male tap dancers um, who have had to make their, make their living. And like, like that was, that was super fun for me to watch. I don't know how you, you know, that could have been a movie if you had developed it out. So I agree, Josh, uh, let's, uh, let's do some alternative casting. Beep, 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 boop, 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 beep, 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 boop, boop. Uh, so Josh for Dixie, Al Pacino probably would have been a stronger, a stronger presence. Thank you. Harrison Ford. I don't know if he would have had the energy there. Maybe, maybe in 1984, he still had some energy left in him. Yeah. Matt Dillon, who, you know, we know Coppola love from, uh, both outsiders and Rumblefish, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe too young. Of course, the best pick was going to be Sylvester Stallone, who was attached until Stallone found out that Robert Evans was sleeping with his girlfriend and then backed out of the project. So that's See, a fun so many, one. So many great things happening. The question, though, is did any of those guys know how to play the cornet like Richard? Right, he did. I, I bet you at least one of them knows how to play. Uh, and then they said Sandman Williams was going to be Richard Pryor. And I don't know how that would have worked because I, you know, Sandman Williams is so... The tap dancing is so much a part of his character. How would that have worked? Yeah, I mean, I assume we would have had, you know, body doubles. Probably Gregory Hines would have been stuck just being a body double for Richard Pryor doing the dancing, and we would have just seen his feet. I mean, there's a lot of shots already where you just see the dancer's feet, and it could be anybody doing it. So, But it's probably should... the Hines brothers. You know? Well, right. No, obviously it is. that. But I'm just saying, uh, you know, we we don't see the the full bodies of the dancers. So I'm sure they could have made that work, but uh, it would have been a very different film because Richard Pryor has such a presence. I'm sure he couldn't have come into this film and just done it as written. You know, he would have had to add his own flair to it. and It would have changed it a lot. Right. So Vera, the Diane Lane part was going to be Brooke Shields. 
Don't know. And then Lila was going to be Sigourney Weaver. So then the character would have had to be white, I guess. So at that point. Oh, yeah. That would have, that would have been a very bad idea. And that would have really lost a lot of the thematic stuff going on there. Yeah. Lastly, uh, Lucky Luciano, Alain Delon. Oh, yeah. I mean, Lucky Luciano is is barely in this film. So I think that would have just been a cameo for Alain Delon, who is a a major French actor. And, And Lucky Luciano, not French. So that would have been a weird choice. <laughs> I did have fun reading about Joe D'Alessandro, uh, who played Lucky Luciano, who was of the Warhol fame in that underground, you know, flash, trash, trash, heat, you know, stuff like that. And uh, little Joe from Walk on the Wild Side, that's that's who they're referencing. He's got a very interesting career. So that was fun you know, to read about yes, so. so much, so much weird background stuff. So, yeah, that's what I mean. There's so much other fun uh, stuff going on. That's not on the screen. Right. So that's a bit of a bummer. I mentioned Larry Marshall as Cab Calloway. Josh, I can mention uh, one other actor, uh, Tom Waits. I just love Tom Waits and he's great as Irving Stack here. So, you know, good, good on. Yeah. Him. Yeah. He's uh, quite, I mean, amazing stacked cast. You know, you talk about Lawrence Fishburne, you've got young Jennifer Gray in here. Like, all these familiar faces that as you watch the movie, it's like, wait, oh, there's that person. And and yet none of them really elevate the film where you might think that once someone shows up, it's going to take it to the next level. Well, I, I want to know what Dave's experience was, because Dave saw about a two hour, 35 minute version of this. And um, as we said, it is getting more acclaimed than the version that you and I saw. And part of it, it was because these problems we had, they say, have been fleshed out in the in the Coppola version. Uh, the uh, what is it called? The Cotton Club uh, Encore. Encore. Yeah, Dave, tell us about it. Well, obviously, I can't compare because I didn't watch the original cut. But hearing you guys talk about it, I I can't imagine that it's that different. There's just more to <laughs> it. There, there's just more footage. There's more things happening. But again, it, even though we get more of Gregory Hines, who, like you guys said, is really good and one of the more interesting characters to watch. It doesn't add up to much more. It do- it doesn't give you more story. It doesn't connect the threads in any way through the whole Cotton Club as a uh, you know as a setting. Like you guys said, possibly a you know a series nowadays where like you get this one setting where all these different stories are happening. Something like that could have been more interesting. But uh, this movie just kind of loses you as you're going through because nothing ever kind of comes together. It's just stuff happening and the encore just was a little bit more stuff and that doesn't make it sound like i want to watch that cut after having seen the original that it will turn my opinion around as it seems to have done for a number of critics when it was released but yeah uh, yeah i can't imagine that being being an improvement for me well i think we've covered this one josh should we rate this out of uh five off-screen producerial murders <laughs> I was going to say like five, five cornets, but that's, that's much more exciting. So I'll go <laughs> first. Murders. I'll go on first on this one. I gave it three. It kept my interest. I love the performances. And I said that all that stuff that didn't work. Uh, yeah, there were things I was like, nah, but it was like, it was one of those like uh, car crashes you couldn't look away from for me. So three off screen producerial murders. Sadly, I think that took place in his car, right? Like they they killed uh, Roy Raiden in his car and then tried to blow him up or something like that. I mean, is it sadder that it was in his car than somewhere else? So like either way, it's very bad. Murder, very bad. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I was less fascinated than you. I'm going to give it two and a half uh, off-screen producer murders because, y- y- yeah, I mean, I didn't feel like it had that train wreck fascination. It wasn't bad enough to have a train wreck fascination, but it wasn't good enough for me to genuinely be invested in it. So sure, the production design, the music, all of the positives that you mentioned are kind of nice, but ultimately I wasn't invested in this movie at all. So two and a half out of five for me. Dave, what do you think of the encore cut? I'm going to go with three uh, producerial murders or whatever (laughs) it is. Uh, But um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of good parts. They just don't add up. And uh, I can't go lower than three, though, because of just how quality a lot of what's happening is. All right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of the Cotton Club. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special retrospective 10th season, 
We are talking about Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club from 1984. And it's time for another dance break. <laughs> Doop, boo, ba, dee, ba, dee, ba, dee, ba, dee, ba, dee, ba, dee, ba, Get it, Josh. Jason, Jason here proving why there are no podcasts of dancing. <laughs> Weirdly. Um, so legacy-wise, I mean, we've already talked extensively here about The Cotton Club Encore which was Coppola's director's cut that he released in 2019, that he spent half a million dollars of his own money to make this film, uh, to make this version of the film rather, to go back to the original negatives and all the extra footage that they shot and to recut the film and release it in 2019. And it was very well reviewed at the time, including from critics who didn't think the original cut was all that good. And, and as I said, Coppola, like George Lucas, has effectively supplanted the original cut in that it's it's not easy to find that. And I presumably he doesn't have any interest in making it easy to find. So if you watch The Cotton Club now, you're most likely to watch that encore cut. And maybe it'll be a better experience, uh, as it seems to have been for a lot of people. You know, I like I said, I watched The Outsiders last night because that was the one you made right before. And this was like kind of his transition back towards even something more mainstream. And, you know, the outs even The Outsiders has like the theatrical cut, which I watched. And then like the re-release for the Toronto Film Festival in 2017, 117 minute cut or whatever. And it's like, you know, I, th I think they did a good enough job at 92 minutes to tell the story that we didn't need to recut The Outsiders. But that's just Coppola. That's just what he does. Yeah, he recuts everything. And just fairly recently, he had announced a big like retrospective uh, of his films that I think maybe is touring theaters and I assume will be released on home video and he, including recut versions of Dementia 13, his early Roger Corman production yeah, and Twixt, his 2011 film that no one saw. So regardless, he is all about just doing recut versions of every movie that he's made. I mean, that's hilarious because when you said that, I'm like, what was he going to do? Put out Finian's Rainbow and youth without youth as recuts, but like literally the answer would be yes, based on what you said. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems like what he's been doing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as we said, he has this very uneven career and, and even follow, you know, following this film, he made more movies that were, were flops, including gardens of stone and Tucker, the man in his dream. And you mentioned youth without youth, which was part of this sort of like late career period where he does have all this money from his incredibly successful vineyard and no longer needs to deal with, you know, Saudi arms dealers or people like Robert Evans and can just go make whatever he wants and makes these movies well, that are not good, but are clearly his full personal vision. Um, uh, real fast. I don't think he was the one who included the Saudi arms dealers. I think that was Evans. So well, right. But I mean, in, he <laughs> has to work on a production like that because, you know, money has to come from somewhere at this point in his career. Uh, and because he's made all these big swings and lost all this money. But at this point now, he has the money. I mean, to the point where he is financing this movie Megalopolis, that is his, you know, longtime dream yes. project that he's supposedly making now, which we'll see if that actually happens. But he's gotten to the phase of actually casting this film. And he's going to spend like $150 million of his own money to make this movie because he can. And he's 82 years old. And what else is he going to do at this point in his right. life? Right. Well, he does have it, like you said, Josh. And it's funny because, you know, um, I had heard this story uh, on the Nerdist podcast. Remember that when that was such a huge thing? And uh, yeah. Chris Hardwick said he was up at um, Skywalker Ranch, right? And uh, Lucas has these movies that he's made that are like $5 million movies that, he'll, that he's never released. And he's like, yeah, maybe 100 years after I'm dead, I'll have him put them out. And it's like, he just has the money to do that. So... He does it right. And obviously, Lucas was one of Coppola's like earliest protégés. George Lucas like revered Coppola. And then again, not so much towards the end, but like American Zoetrope, like that was the company that was supposed to take on the studios. And Lucas was like Coppola's, you know, capo there, like his his editor, his right hand man. And, you know, they were doing it. They were finding money elsewhere and doing all these crazy things. So you can see that influence going forward. Yeah, I mean, Lucas obviously has a lot more money than Coppola, but uh, but similarly, you're right. They're these kind of revered eccentrics who can do whatever they want. And I'm sure Megalopolis, whether it's good or bad, will be fascinating if he releases it. Uh, I have seen Youth Without Youth, which is not which is not very good, but uh, not uh, I may have seen Tetro, which was with Vincent Gallo. 
I think, which is another yeah. later Coppola yeah. film. Um, and I definitely did not see Twixt, which was the last film that he actually made in 2011. No. I think the last like re highly regarded one was the rainmaker in 97 yeah which i haven't seen that but of course i mean we're, i'm talking about the flops but but post cotton club he did make successful films i mean the most notable i think as a success and that people like a lot was peggy sue got married uh also featuring nicholas cage of course who is coppola's nephew uh but the godfather part three as much as people maybe don't like it uh was a big success in 1990 uh and even even jack the uh punchline really with Robin Williams as the young boy in the man's body uh, was, was a fairly successful film. Um, so, you know, Coppola, despite his giant failures, seemed to always be able to come back to something that, that people would want to go see. Yeah. I mean, he had some hits in the 90s and, you know, he's always been a successful producer. He's had tons of successful uh, productions and when we talked about Sofia Coppola we talked about how Francis produces a you know bling ring in a lot of her movies right so virgin suicides um so yeah man uh, uh one of the, the quintessential major figures of american filmmaking he is he is indeed um as far as the stars of this film go i mean richard gear maybe we didn't particularly care for him in this film but obviously this was a part of his ascent as a major major movie star you know, huge roles later on, including Pretty Woman and Chicago, Primal Fear, Internal Affairs. Uh, he and Diane Lane uh, reunited a couple of times in Unfaithful, which is quite a good movie, and got Diane Lane an Oscar nomination, and in the Nicholas Sparks film, uh, Nights in Rodanthe, which is probably not as good. I have not ever seen. Your favorite movie. Yeah, no, I've seen a shocking number of Nicholas Sparks movies, but not that one. Well, part of the reason we're tough on Richard Gere here is because not just after, but before he was like looking and looking for Mr. Goodbar, you know, stuff he was doing in the 70s. He was already a big star and like a really charismatic presence on screen. Right. And he can be. And, you know, he's someone who has a lot of integrity here as a performer. And in, you know, in the last decade or so, he's mainly worked in these indie films that maybe they're not always good, but you can tell that he's always really passionate about the role and about the film itself and in doing uh, you know, these projects that he has the luxury to do. So uh, definite respect to Richard Gere, but this is just not not his best work here. Well, uh, I will say of the last decade or so, I wanted to, uh, you know, and you know, I love this movie, Arbitrage, which is one of those business insider, uh, rich family scandal type things that you would see on like damages or succession, like I think that's a very good movie. Yeah, I don't like it as much as you do, but it is a, it is an interesting film. And and I think those uh, corrupt but uh, conflicted rich people are the kinds of roles that Richard Gere has done very well, especially later in his career. Diane Lane, as we said, had quite a 1984, although the failures of both this film and Streets of Fire kind of hampered her career for a little while. But later, as she got older, she became, of course, a huge mainstream star in romantic comedies like Under the Tuscan Sun and Must Love Dogs. Uh, of course, in the DC universe as Martha, the mother of <laughs> Superman in Man of Steel and subsequent mm -hmm. films. So we got we to shout that out. Um, she <laughs> appeared funny. in Jack with uh, reuniting with Francis Ford Coppola, uh, was nominated for an Oscar for Unfaithful, and uh, most recently was quite good in the film with Kevin Costner called Let Him Go. That was a kind of an underrated film. She's, she's a great actress. Yeah. She's going to be in this upcoming uh, limited series this year called Extrapolations and Unanticipated Stories of How the Upcoming Changes to Our Planet Will Affect Love, Faith, Work, Family, and on a personal and a human scale. And Tobey Maguire is attached to this one. So... That's interesting. I mean, you got Tobey Maguire, Forrest Whitaker, Marion Cotillard, Isa Gonzalez. So lots of uh, lots of big time players. And we haven't really seen much of Tobey Maguire other than a quick Spider-Verseian type thing. Yeah, that's that's I hadn't heard anything about that, uh, that series. But certainly, yeah, Tobey Maguire has been as we talked. about. I mean, I I'm looking at it. It's Ed Norton, Kerry Russell, David Diggs, Meryl Streep. Is it like so maybe they all have one? Yeah, it's eight episodes. Maybe they all have one episode, yeah, right? Yeah, like an but, anthology uh, thing. Yeah, lots of, it looks like it, you know, 
hey, man, if you could make art about uh, the impending doom of civilization because we refuse to re- recycle, let's go for yeah, it. Yeah, and put Diane Lane in it because she's good. She's always good. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Gregory Hines uh, is still was mainly known for uh, his work on stage uh, and his dancing, of course, but he did continue in a, in a very weird acting career where he made films that were like the Cotton Club, mainly focused on him as a dancer, like Tap, which uh, he did with Sammy Davis Jr. Um, but then also stuff, I remember weirdly for some reason when I was a kid, I was really into this ridiculous sci-fi action movie that he starred in called Eve of Destruction, where he has to defeat like a sexy female evil robot named Eve. I almost tried to watch this again before this podcast, just cause like, why was this a movie that like, when I was into like the Terminator and stuff like that, I loved Eve of Destruction, which I'm sure is very bad. And the idea of Gregory Hines as this like badass military operative seems like horrible miscasting, but um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, he had his own sitcom for a while called The Gregory Hines Show. Uh, and he uh, he passed away in two thousand three. So do you do you have you seen other Gregory Hines movies, Jason? Ah, I don't know, man. I really don't know. I know you know my grandfather, who you know was a comedian for over sixty years, and uh, you know was a kid around the time of the Cotton Club in the thirties. You know, but performing uh, along those same East Coast circuits in probably the fifties and sixties was a huge Gregory Hines fan and probably the Hines brothers all together, like just a great act there. Yeah. And Maurice Hines didn't do much uh, in movies or much as an actor, but is, uh, is still alive and uh, you know, has done a ton of work on stage and as a dancer, Lonette McKee, who plays uh, the uh, love interest for Gregory Hines's character. Wait, Josh, yes? you forgot to mention uh, running scared, the Billy Crystal wasn't it him and Billy Crystal as like a buddy cop movie? Oh yeah, but, like... yeah. I haven't seen that either. But um, you're right. That is certainly uh, a bigger film than Eve of Destruction. I just it was like it used to be on TV like all the time, like you you know on like your local TV station Saturday afternoon movie or whatever. right. So yeah, I mean, just some weird stuff where he had this this career of like you know random acting roles, but in the meantime was always like on stage and and dancing and it just seemed sort of haphazard what he did and you know sitcom roles and stuff but hey good for him yeah i mean he had a, he had a career in theater so i mean it's interesting cuz he could use tv or film as a backup career right right, right so exactly he does, does a sitcom for a season or two and gets some money and then is able to go back on stage and do the thing that he loves the most um Lonette McKee also mainly has worked on stage um she you know, worked here and there in film and TV. The last credit she has is in 2012. And she is a uh, a college professor of theater. So she was never as big a star as a lot of the other people in this film, but, you know, was working steadily as well. Uh, William Kennedy, as you mentioned, the screenwriter, um, his only other screen credit is for the film based on his novel, Ironweed, which came out in 1987 starring Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep, but, uh, you know, a hugely successful novelist. His books sound interesting. There's like a family, I think the Phelan's uh, generations of Irish immigrants and how they adapt in America throughout the the times. I I would be interested in reading that stuff. Yeah, probably better novelist than uh, a screenwriter, though. Who knows, you know, how much of if they wrote that many drafts and then, you know, redid it all on, on set. Who knows how much of his work really made it into this film. So any other legacy things you want to mention here, Jason? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, Josh, we've had, uh, and I'm coining this term, you know, we've had the, the reconnaissance, right? Um, and I, as I've told Dave, I think Nicolas Cage is next up. He's having his moment. And then I like to call it the cage of enlightenment. Um, so, mm. you know, I think we're seeing uh, like every project he is coming up looks super interesting and wild and, you know, whether it's uh, the one where he's just the best actor in the world or, you know, he's, you know, in the Wild West doing something. So I really like him in this. As I said, uh, Fred Gwynn, we know Bob Hoskins was a big actor, especially in Britain. And most people know him from Who Frames Roger Rabbit. Oni Madden, I read a great book about Oni Madden last year called The Vapors. It's about after this whole New York time period where he got sent to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was like around the time Vegas was being built up in the... 40s, 50s, and 60s, Hot Springs was a huge gambling town, and Odie Madden was like kind of like the, 
the unofficial boss of the city. So I highly recommend that book, The Vapors. That sounds fascinating. I feel like that should be a movie or a TV series. I would imagine someone's got it. If you want to borrow the book, you can. Dave, if you learn how to read, you can too. Thank you. Hey, Josh, this Embassy Home Video paid $4.7 million to release this on VHS, the highest price for rights at the time. So why that was it. Yeah, we mentioned uh, Joe D'Alessandro. Last thing, uh, Woodland, Robert Evans' famed Beverly Hills mansion, now owned by Discovery CEO David Zaslav. <laughs> Thanks. So that is The Cotton Club, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Tap dance on over to our social media. Beep, bop, a deep, beep, a deep, beep, beep. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. GopherJason.com was murdered. We're not sure if Robert Evans was involved with it or not, but it was a website at one point in time. Uh, I'm on all the socials at either Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy. Josh Bell hates everything.com uh, on life support, maybe, let's say. Uh, I've written about a few Coppola things there, including Dementia 13. Uh, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And check out the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group. I'm sure. There are some of those uh, contrarians in that group who, and maybe not contrarian really because of the reputation who think The Cotton Club is a brilliant film. And, and you know what? Like this led to so many other little tentacles in this episode, books, movies, the like, that I think we covered a lot of ground and gave a lot of good recommendations, even if not for this, for other things. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I can't say I would recommend watching this film, but certainly a lot of other stuff worth checking out. Including our next episode. What is uh, what is in that one, Jason? Well, Josh, I would tell you, but I'm not a bastard son of a bitch. It's not my pick. I'm a gentleman, so I'm going to let Dave say it. Yes, it's my pick. Uh, going back to 1994, a season that we previously didn't allow me to make a pick for. And I am picking The Crow. And really fast. It's not that we didn't allow you. We just didn't consider you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So tune in next tune in <laughs> next time for The Crow and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Josh, tap dance us out. Deep it a dap, a doob it a deep. Beep, bop, 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 beep it a beep.